This episode of Horsepower Heritage is sponsored by Model Citizen Diecast. Now, maybe you can't afford that full-size E30 M3 or that rare 71 Nissan Skyline GTR. And that's probably okay, because your garage is already chock full of other projects. And you've been turning so many wrenches, your knuckles look like they belong to a prize fighter. The last thing you need to do is muck about with another old car. And that's where Model Citizen Diecast comes in. They sell collector-grade scale model cars from manufacturers like Amalgam, Auto Art, Mini Champs, and others. They stock 143rd scale and 118th scale offerings. From streetcars to race machines, from pre-war classics to brand spanking new cars, Model Citizen Diecast has something for just about every interest and price range. Shop their online catalog at ModelCitizenDieCast.com or check out their Instagram page at Model Citizen Diecast. Model Citizen Diecast, because your inner child still wants to play with cars. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. My name is Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you. And here's a few places that you're listening from. Parsippany, New Jersey. Cody, Wyoming. Cleburne, Texas, which is just south of Fort Worth. I looked it up. Ukiah, California. Sao Paulo, Brazil. Perth, Western Australia. Hamburg, Germany. Torre de Mbara, Catalonia, Spain. Dublin, Ireland. And Oslo, Norway. And that's just a few of the places that you're listening from. You know, every week I get so excited to see new spots on the globe that are tuning into the show. Thank you all for being a part of this little experiment in uniting us gearheads, at least in a virtual way. And thank you also for the messages and the emails that you've sent. Please share the show with your friends. Next time you get together at a car or a motorcycle meet, spread the word about Horsepower Heritage. I know that a lot of you are starting to get out a little bit more, even with the pandemic still hanging over our heads. The show is growing each week, and that growth is going to help me bring you even better content, not just on the podcast, but also on the YouTube channel. And in case you didn't know, every one of my interview episodes is shot in 4K video, and I've got some really cool location shoots that are in the editing pipeline right now. So tell everyone you can about the show, share it on your social media if you want, and don't forget my Instagram page, at Horsepower Heritage. Follow me over there. And I'll tell you what, let's do this. I've got a stack of Horsepower Heritage decals sitting here. So send me an email at horsepowerheritage at gmail.com and I'll send you a decal in the mail while they last, of course. Slap it on your car, your toolbox, your helmet, whatever. Okay, so today we've got part two of my interview with Jake Krutja, the Flying Dutchman. You're going to hear more about some of the techniques of metal shaping and coach building and it won't get too technical, but it will give you an idea of how the art and the science have to come together. If you've never taken a hammer and dolly to a piece of sheet metal, you'll learn a few things. And if you already possess those skills, you'll definitely relate to the conversation. We also talked about one of Jake's many recent ventures, which is making custom parts for the Mercedes-Benz Unimog. And his plans for a custom E-Type Jaguar Coupe which is a long-term project, and it's something that he's done some concept drawings and created a model of just to get the lines right before he ever cuts on the car itself. And by the way, Jake teaches metal shaping classes several times a year at his workshop. And if you want to get in on them, you can find him on Instagram at theflyingdutchmanco, and I'll put a link in the show notes. I have to warn you, though, that people come from all over to attend those classes, and they fill up quickly. In fact, Jake has a map on the wall in his shop that's covered in pins representing where his students are from, 
They fly all across the country to learn from him. And in fact, I think he's actually had some international students. This guy is so busy with his hands in so many projects, I don't know how he does it. So without further ado, I give you part two of my interview with Jake Krutya, the Flying Dutchman. Let's hit it. Like it's the perfect auto restoration metal shaper coach builder. You can't see him. You can't see his work. His work is identical to what you think the guy from 1936's work looks like. You know what I mean? So you can't tell that they were even there. I'm more selfish. I want some recognition for me busting my ass or creating a, a great solution to a unique problem. Um, and that's why I enjoy this new range of coach building and metal shaping that I'm doing now. Hey, um, listen, there's no sin in marketing and promoting yourself as long as your work is as good as you say it is. Right. You know? Yeah. There are plenty of people out there who self-promote but cannot deliver. Right. That's the sin. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm a lot happier now. Um, not recreating, but creating, you know, trying to build original works. I've started working on a Unimog product line. I'm making aluminum removable hardtops now, um, finishing off the details on that. Let yeah. me ask you about that because sure. there are so many generations of Unimog now. I don't know how deep we're in. Like, I think we're like 15 generations in. Is that how far? Something like that. Okay. It's wild. And maybe in in that in that timeline, there are some years that kind of don't depart too much from the previous generation. But I'll let me get to my question, which mm -hmm. is: Have you decided on the focus on one Unimog model, or are you kind I'm, of right now? I'm focusing on the four hundred four. Okay, um, they're very plentiful. They're attainable. Um, it's a great place to get started. Next, beyond that, I'll be going into the 406 model, um, which were, you know, a lot more advanced diesel. They actually can go on the highway. They have enough power to, to pull that off. And the 404 ran from, what, about 63 to about 68 or something like that? I couldn't tell you the specific years, but okay. it's definitely a 60s. Yeah. Truck but machine. it's it's totally analog. It's all yeah, yeah. very analog. Carburetor, two mechanical two liter gas engine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's all gears. There's nothing fancy about them. They're right. super simple. Yeah. yeah. Very utilitarian. Yeah. Yeah. Very underpowered, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but we're working on that. The underpowered thing about Unimogs is like what's your context? I mean, what were they expected to do brand new? Oh. They're tractors. Yeah, they were tractors, you know, looking like trucks. Right. You know, taking crops to market or, you know, plowing snowy roads in Switzerland. You know, they weren't doing 60 miles an hour, 70, 80 miles an hour on the freeway. Right. You know? Well, and after all, that's what Unimog means. Universal Motor Gerät in German. So Universal Motor Implement. Okay. That's where the name Unimog comes yeah. from. Yeah. So... 
soup to nuts. If you wanted to have a logging truck or a snowplow or, mm-hmm. you know, a street sweeper or ambulance, ambulance. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, troop carrier. It, right. It was, that, that's actually the one that we have is a Swiss troop carrier. Right. Yeah. Super cool. Uh, yeah. It's a great truck. No, I, I didn't get it at first. Um, I was all about speed, but then once I, you know, ran that thing up a 45 degree incline, I was like, this is way too cool. Yeah. That's so, where they shine. Yeah. Unimogs are super cool. By definition, they're versatile. They're gaining a lot of popularity with the four-wheel crowd in the U.S. now because you can get them cheaply. Right. And yet, there's not... Depending on the model, yeah. Right. The earlier ones, um, there's like a baby Unimog from the 50s. That one is more... It looks like a toy, honestly. It's it's small. It's very small. And it's got massive wheels, like tractor wheels. Right. They're farm implement, you know, for cutting through the mud. Right. Uh, or the snow or whatnot. Um, but in the 60s, the 404 model and the 406, 416 model, those are the ones that are gaining real traction right now. They're on the lower scale of affordability, so you can afford them. Um, they're not a dollars $150,000 Unimog, you know, like some of the newer ones. Um, but there's no aftermarket so all of the wild, crazy Unimogs you're seeing are all custom jobs. Um, so what I'm trying to do right now is is create a product line for the early Mogs uh, because I don't I don't know of any aftermarket. There really isn't an aftermarket yet. And that product line, how do you envision it at this point? Yeah, well, I I figured I'd roll out with bumpers first, and, and it's all predicated on making actual sales. Uh, so I'm not going to produce something unless I can sell it. So bumpers, I've already sold one to a guy in St. Louis. Uh, aluminum removable hardtop. Um, this has been kind of a trick. It's it's the, it's an extensive project. Um, learning how to make this thing. A sheet metal coach-built item, almost. Um, learning how to production run it. I sold one to the, a guy in Washington. But yeah, starting with bumpers, hard tops. Um, everyone loves a snorkel on an off-road vehicle. Um, whether you need it or not. Whether you need it or not, yeah. And 99% of the people don't right. need it. Yeah, but. no one's going neck deep and... Into a into a river, you know. Although to be fair, they're really good for um, dusty conditions. That's too. true. So. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, going to start with those three things, um, and then I may branch out into like the four hundred six and recreate that. But yeah, we'll see how the demand is going to tell me whether there is a market or not. So if this does take off via social media, which is I think that's the way it's going to happen. Um, and that's why they're gaining the popularity they are is because now you can see them. Everyone can see them. It's in your pocket, you know? So um, I think that's why they've gained popularity and they are the most affordable, but the values are rising. So the floor is coming up. The ceiling will continue to rise and the floor will continue to follow. How do you go from a custom one-off to something resembling a series production? I have to make wise choices 
of, of about the design, uh, something that's easy enough to produce, but uh, has enough refinement and that is attractive enough. Um, I struggled with the top center panel on the roof. Uh, I designed it to have these ribs. Um, and the way I went about it was interesting, and I learned a lot from it. But in the long run, for a production run, uh, I think I'll do it another way. So I'm still learning. You know, I'm 15 years into the, my metal shaping journey, but I'm still learning of, of new ways to do things and better ways to do things. Yeah, because a manufacturer would simply produce a stamp. Right. And that's literally what I'm going to have to do. But the roof panel is five feet wide, four foot from front to back. Um, I can't afford a $20,000 die right. to put in a 300-ton stamping press. But I can make a stamping die for one of the ribs so I could form roll it to the profile that the roof is going to be shaped. And then I could put it into a press break and stamp one rib at a time. So each each roof section will have that seven rib design. Yeah, and then how do you make it affordable? And maybe that's not the right word, but... Well, yeah, that's the tough part. Um, I have to make them in quantity. Uh, once I have the machine set up to do the job, I need to be able to do it on repeat. So the whole idea from getting out of service work, the auto restoration, and more into products is is making repeat amounts of money on the same idea or the same problem. Um, with auto restoration, I've never done the same thing twice. I'm always reinventing the wheel, buying more tools to do the new job, and so I'm losing half my profit to the new tools every time I do a new job, and it just... It's not sustainable if, you know, you want to have a family or a retirement, you know, or any kind of life outside of work. So that's another reason I'm jumping into products. But yeah, as far as affordability, it comes in quantity. So if I'm able to see that the market will buy this product, then it's easier for me to produce them in quantity and be able to bring the price to a manageable range. You know? and, and so what that's going to require is for you to get 20 orders before you turn the power on and start. I mean, maybe not 20, but at least half a dozen. Right. Yeah. If I had half a dozen solid orders, green light. Well, half a dozen is totally doable. And, and I think I almost have them. Um, I made a post on a Facebook group and uh, I got 11 different members saying they want to know more about the bumpers and the hardtops. Um, and six of them were, were interested in hardtops. A uh, guy in Canada, a guy in the UK. So it's really neat to see that they're, they're interested in the distance isn't turning them off from wanting it. You know, they're still wanting it. No, that's great. And um, somewhere out there right now, there's a guy listening to this who's got that idea, that seed, and he's like, how do I, how do I approach this? How do I, you know, put one foot in front of the other? And listening to you has got to be inspiring. I, mean, you, I you, hope so. You're doing the problem solving. Hey, listen, if you've got an idea, you've got a dream out there, 
you just have to do it. You, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah, you can think a lot and you can plan a lot, but. Oh, overthinking is the worst. Yeah. I'm guilty of that the most. Um, figuring out that roof panel, I failed four times. And on, on, well, on the fourth time, I figured it out. So, yeah. How many light bulbs did Edison oh, try like before, 10, before he got, the, got it right? You number? Know? Yeah. I Who mean, and, and neither of us are inventing electric light. Right. But, yeah. but the same principles apply in your head. Mm-hmm. You know, the same fears, trepidations, what have you. Yeah. Still apply that. Um, what's the old saying? Anal- overanalysis leads to paralysis. That's a good one. You know, it's yeah. true. Yeah, no matter absolutely. what your no matter what your endeavor is, if someone's interested in learning metal shaping mm-hmm. and fabrication, what's your best advice? Start with a class, kind of like what I did, and then um, it depends on how serious you are about it. If you're completely obsessed and and just a flat out maniac like me, you're going to have to get a job. You'll. This is a funny story. Um, Tanner from Spectre Porsche, he actually, um, or Spectre Design Studios, I think that's what it is. Um, he actually asked me how he could start metal shaping. Uh, he had a, a sketch of this Porsche Roadster he wanted to build. And this was like five something years ago. And I said, you know what? If you want to get into Porsches and you're serious about the metal shaping, you're going to need to get a job, not just some weekend thing. You're going to need, like, if you really want to do this and have good results, you're going to need to do this way more than you think you need to. So I would recommend getting a job doing it um, because it's going to take that much time and commitment to to get somewhere with it. And um, I recommended that Tanner get a job with Rod Emery. And that's exactly what he did. And somehow he got the job and he worked there for a few years and yeah. So actually on my way to deliver the Unimog top to Washington, I plan on stopping at Tanner's new shop in in Utah and helping him with the hood. That's awesome. So, so if you're listening, go to Instagram and look up Specter Porsche Mm -hmm. and you'll see what Tanner's up to. He's doing some awesome stuff. He's building a Porsche special with a tube frame yeah. and all hand-formed panels. Just right. awesome. From an idea. like yep. I was talk- It's the most satisfying thing you could ever do. Yeah. He's really inspirational. He's like Christopher Runge. Same, oh, right. same thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Doing it a little bit different. Uh-huh. Uh, but... Uh, Chris yeah. is... Chris is a big time... He's been doing it for a decade. Yeah. He's been making a living off of an idea and that, I mean, he's not copying anyone, you know what I mean? And everyone's just a little bit different, every, every iteration. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think he's on his like 10th car now. It's insane. Yeah. I've seen one in person. It was really impressive. Very cool. Yeah. The whole resurgence of coach building is fun to watch. People are looking for that hand-built, Mm-hmm. aesthetic right and i heard jay leno i'm gonna quote jay again i heard jay leno say recently on one of his youtube videos that 
everybody's romanticizing hand-built, handmade. And he's like, handmade sucks. <laughs> handmade, you get, it's unreliable. It's never yeah. the same twice. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But it, it has its charms. Right. And um, I think we're overloaded with, uh, you know, mass production, mass production goods. And it's less about, actually, it's less about um, a unique bespoke product. It's more about, I think people just want that, um, that well-built product. Okay. Whether it's a car or a toaster, mm-hmm. you know, everything's so disposable now. Yeah. Pe- people want something that's going to last. I, I aim for it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've seen your work. It's, it's going to hold up. Well, thanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, it's the truth. No, there's continuity in that, though. I mean, the tools I buy to do the to do the work that's going to stand up. I mean, I've got American tools. I've got some Swiss tools. I've got a Canadian tool. Um, yeah, it's all quality stuff. Well, it's going to last you. Yeah, I mean, you refurbish them. You don't throw them away, you know? Right. If they have enough value, you, you fix them. Um, like you were saying, everything is a throwaway. It is a global economy, and China has their place. We have ours. You know, everyone has to decide what part of the market they want to be um, and what roles they want to play. So it's a lot easier to buy another one than to have the knowledge and experience to fix it. You know what I mean? So like, yeah, you could fix that lawnmower or you could spend X amount of your time through your money, you know, and, and buy another one. And it would take you the same or less to just buy another one. Yeah. From a creative point of view, what made you decide to go into metal shaping versus say being a machinist? Seeing, seeing a car in bare metal is, is seeing, it's like seeing the whole story. You know, there, there's no paint to cover it up. You know, you can see the story. Um, it depends on how finely finished it is. Of course, if it's perfectly polished, you can't see anything and it's just a computer rendering perfect. But, um, but that just depends on the piece you're examining. Um, when things have a little bit of character, uh, it's just a little more interesting to look at. You know, there's some defining features about it. Well, I'll tell you what never fails to amaze me is it's one thing to, to get a fender or, you know, a body panel to that 99% mark, Mm -hmm. but then to get it smooth enough and perfect enough where once the paint lays down, you don't see any, you know, tool marks and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. To take something to that level, uh, you have to go beyond what makes sense financially. Um, There's a point of diminishing returns. You know, the further you go, it still takes all that time, but you see less and less change, you know, but you can see a visual change the further you go. Um, But yeah, the, that last 5%, that last 10, 5%, you know, 
that last five, ten percent is like it takes as much time as the first eighty percent. Sure. You know? because uh, I can rough something out in there a matter of a couple hours. Um, and then but to do the to do the hard work is that last three percent, you know, or whatever it is. Um and it's just painstaking repetition and it's a practice makes perfect kind of thing. You're, you're not, you're just drilling the basics over and over and over, making another pass, making another pass, checking it again, you know, hitting it with a block, cross hatching it and, and showing the highs and the lows, bringing up the lows, you know, supporting, supporting it where it needs it, beating it where it, you know, it's, you know, on dolly, off dolly technique, um, and just working it till you're sick of it, <laughs> but it just looks better and better every time you make a round. And, um, yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand the thing. You just, you know, you just put it through the machine and takes care of it. And it, it's, it doesn't happen that way. Um, so it's, it's constant analysis. Um, having a perspective and, and being a great observer of what's happening with the metal. Sure. Because key. if you're not keeping track of things, things can get out of hand really quick. I mean, I've, I've seen metal shaping happening and I don't have a trained eye, so I don't necessarily see progress or mm -hmm. change. Yeah. But the trained eye sees volumes. Oh, Right. And before I really developed my skills, I didn't understand, you know, um, I'd have my mentor over my shoulder telling me what's happening and it's happening right in front of me and I couldn't see it kind of a thing. Um, but you screw up enough panels and <laughs> you have to do it over so many times you, you learn to see what's happening, um, and, and look for hints and um, find find early indicators of that what you're doing is actually working, you know, because sometimes it'll seem like nothing's happening and then all of a sudden it's gone way too far, you know. So the English wheel's a good one for that one. Absolutely. And yeah. you can screw something up really quick with the wheel, right? I mean, yeah. one yeah. stray push or pull. Uh -huh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, you have to be a machine with a wheel. Yeah. Um, I prefer the hammer. <laughs> I'm interested in the wheel. Is, is the, is the English wheel more about the feel or the visual watching it or is it kind of a uh, balance? Well, th there is, there's definitely balance. Um, I like to set the wheel up high so I can see. So I'm looking at the panel and the wheel contacting it. Um, and I'm watching the track marks as I'm wheeling it with a partner or by myself. Um, and you want to overlap those, those tracks. Uh, the tension can't be, I mean, it's a giant C clamp. It's like a hammer exerts a moment of pressure in, in a dot of, of impact affected zone. The wheel works in a totally different way where there's pressure all the time. So if you stop, it's still exerting pressure. If you move and stop again, it's still exerting pressure. 
Um, and you have to use it to your advantage. Every tool works a certain way, so you have to use them to your advantage. Um, but yeah, you can't hold it wrong. You can't let it sag. It'll have all these... The, the panel has to be in the per perfect position as it glides through the upper and lower dies at all times, or you're going to get adverse results. Right, and now you've got to fix that. Right. Which yeah. could take forever. It, it takes a lot longer than it does to screw it up. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So. Yeah, it's a fascinating tool. Yeah, and the the whole wheel etiquette, like there's etiquette for using these tools, you know. Um, it's very specific, you know. If you have a, a dial indicator, um, you need to check your upper wheel. Make sure it's round. Most wheels aren't. You know, there'll be a thou, two, maybe three thousandths out of round. And so every time that that comes around, th there's a high spot. It's like a cam lobe. And every time it comes through there, the, that, that circumference or that, that perimeter distance, um, space that out on your panel. And every X amount, there's going to be a pinch zone. So you're going to get highs right there and then lows in between those. So you're going to wind up with little hilltops in your panel, you know, if your wheel isn't round. You know? And the only way to fix it was with an English wheel, right? What? Those hills and those peaks and valleys. Oh, I mean, you could chase it with a hammer, but I mean, if you have a wheel that, is, that isn't round, it's corrupted, um, you're, that's all you're going to be able to do with that machine right so you need to send that upper wheel out get it trued yeah um having a fine polish like the surface of the wheel is going to imprint into the panel so if you have a rusty top wheel i've seen people like start rowing on this panel and it's got rust on the upper wheel i'm like what are you doing like oh it doesn't matter it's going to do the same amount of work we'll just sand it after and I'm just like, I gotta walk away. <laughs> like, for me, it like gets me all wound up. Um, but yeah, whatever the surface of the die is, surface quality as far as polish, that's going to be imprinted onto the panel. And that upper wheel, for people who don't know, it's detachable, and there are different shapes of upper wheel. Uh, usually, it's the lower wheel. I'm sorry, lower. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's the lower anvil uh, that are interchangeable. The top, the top one, you can change it, but um, you can actually, there, there's a technique where you, you put a rubber band over it and it changes it from a, a shaping machine to a form machine. So sh the difference between shape and form, uh, form is like taking a piece of paper and, and putting a curve in it. That's form. Shape is curvature in this direction and that direction. Compound curves. Right, exactly. Yeah. So that's the difference. So sometimes your panel will need form. You know, it'll have some compound in it, like you've already been wheeling it and working it. But instead of trying to shape in more curvature, you need to form just manually, just with your hand or over your knee, you know, whatever it takes um, to give it the right amount of attitude. There's so many things you need to watch out for. And um, 
I mean, the panel is telling you what it wants. It's like speaking to you in a sense, but you really have to know what you want from it. When you were at Alan Taylor, you were able to work on some high-end stuff, obviously, because mm-hmm. that's all they do, but you were able to work on uh, a car that podiumed at Pebble. Is that right? Uh, a couple, actually. I made this windshield template. Um, basically, I took this 1950s Tabalago, like, sports car and uh, created a windshield tool. I don't know what else to call it. It's a glass forming tool. Um, I made angular structural bracketry pieces, um, welded them together, uh, shaped them to the inside of the window area on the windshield, uh, and created a, uh, a form to slump the glass over to create the windshield. Uh, and I think that car got like second or third at Pebble back in like 06, 07, something like that. But really cool. Tabalago was black, roadster, sporty car. Yeah, it's a good example of the extent you have to go to for some of these restorations. Oh, yeah. We got to custom make a windshield, you know. It costs so much. I mean, making a windshield is no, no easy task, you yeah. know. Yeah, you can't uh, just order one. No, you can't. <laughs> not for a 1951 Tabalago. The internet's good, but it's not that good. Right. Every car guy should go to Pebble at least once. Did you take inspiration? I mean, I, dumb question, right? Well, I mean, there's there's a reason they charge so much to get in. <laughs> that there's stuff there that you can't see anywhere else. Um, it's really exciting to go there. Um Everyone dresses up. It's kind of like Goodwood in that sense. I haven't been to Goodwood yet. I'd love to go to that. Um, been to Pebble a few times. Um, but yeah, you get to see things that you never get to see. And they're driving in and driving out. You get to hear them. You get to smell them. Um, you get to look inside them. Sometimes you get to talk to the owners. But yeah, it's pretty wild. Even went uh, and gotten my Dawn Patrol hat one year. Last year, I hung around the Thomas Flyer, the 1907 Thomas Flyer, New York to Paris car. Okay. I think it's out of the Hera collection. So I hung around that car until he did his startup demonstration. Yeah. And to have it come alive in front of you. Right. Dude. Yeah. <laughs> the best. Uh, one of the most memorable cars I I can think of right now is this old Franklin and it had this really wild motor and just the cadence of how that thing was firing off it it wasn't like any like nothing sounds like it well Franklin's were air cooled okay yeah 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 no this thing was super wild and the guy was dressed to the nines like all like he was in the tour like he did the whole tour um with this car and then came back and parked it on the lawn and yeah pretty impressive show yeah like i said you got you owe it to yourself if you're a car guy to go at least once yeah the the tickets aren't cheap but it's worth it to do at least once yeah i mean you can't like you said you see stuff there you'll see nowhere else and you'll see stuff there that won't see the light of day that's yeah probably for another 10 years probably not you know so 
Very cool. You'll see these cars at auctions, at Pebble, in private collections. And that's about it. You know, they might drive their cars and they might not. The values of the cars depend on the quality of them. And uh, that's usually why they don't drive them. <laughs> I mean, who could risk, you know, getting creamed in traffic Yeah. Uh, with, you know, your 250 GTO, you know? There are, there are very few guys, when you think about how many cars there are out there, there are very right. few guys who will who will use them as intended. Right. And there are private collections that no one ever gets to see. There's cars that have been shuttered away for decades mm -hmm. and the the real high-end guys know where they're at, mm -hmm. but nobody gets to see them. Right. I've got this E-Type that I'm taking care of for its owner. It's just a E-Type 2 plus 2. So it's kind of the ugly duckling of the of the E-Types. But it's still a Series 1. It's a 66. And um, my fantasy as a coach builder car guy is to 3D scan the car and create a low drag coupe version for the 2 plus 2 um, Series 1 car and uh, use it as a daily driver. So... Why the hell not? I, I mean, I had talked to a friend about painting it. I'm like, if I'm going to paint this thing, I'm going to paint it black, you know? But then I was like, I can't drive that. I'll chip the paint. And he's like, you better freaking drive it. Like, if I'm going to help you with this thing, like, you're going to drive it. Like, don't be afraid. I'm like, you're right. Like, what am I turning into? Like, I began, I haven't even started working on the car. And I was already scared to to use and 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 use it as I should, you know? I vote for silver. Okay. Well, that there are some very, very good-looking low-drag coupes in silver. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, look at the silver arrows from Mercedes-Benz in the 30s, right? Well, that's the W154 is my favorite car. Fantastic stuff. Favorite car. Yeah. Yeah, the low-drag coupe is number two. <laughs> that's another cool car that was at Pebble last year. Was it? The Mercedes reproduction of the, the first silver arrow car. So what's that, the W25? I wish I could remember right now. Okay. But it's got this bulbous nose. Uh-huh. And it's got a cone tail. I'll and, look that up. And, it, and it's open wheel. It's a reproduction? Yeah. Or the, recreation? The, the, original or? Car, the original car was lost. Oh, okay. And Mercedes has recreated it. Mm -hmm. Very good. Yeah. Re just super odd looking, but um, it was the first. Yeah. And the other thing about that is that those cars were sort of accidentally silver. I guess the car, when it was first finished, it hadn't been painted yet when, when the public first saw it. Mm -hmm. And the bare aluminum just kind of was a hit. Okay. So they kept doing them in silver. Oh, okay. You know, but, um, and, it, and it became obviously a, a trademark. Yeah, became a signature. Yeah, yeah a signature, exactly. Now, I, I have other metal shaping fantasies. I'd love to recreate a Mercedes T80. Have you seen that car? It's six wheels. It's two rear axles. It's got these giant pontoon rear fenders. I think so. It's got wings on the side. <laughs> the thing's like 30 feet long. Sounds like Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah, it's nuts. Center center position steering. Okay, really, yeah. yeah. I'm going to have to look this up. Yeah. T80. T80, Mercedes T80. 
What era are we talking about? Mid-30s? Like, yeah, 1938. Okay. 1939. Okay. Yeah. Six-wheel. Mm-hmm. Why? Uh, it actually had a transaxle. Hmm. It's mid-engine, and um, it's just a beast. So it's like a touring car? No, this is like a land speed Autobahn car. Oh, holy yeah. smokes. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I'm going to look it up. Speed machine. That's awesome. Yeah. In talking to you, what I'm hearing from a creative perspective is that you're not the guy who's going to be happy in his career taking that Porsche body or, for that matter, that Bugatti and restoring it because it's someone else's creation. What you want to do is make your own thing. You you want to you want to pull something from the ether. Making an original is the ultimate challenge. I hate the phrase artist, but like I fought that my whole adult life because I had people tell me, "Oh, you're an artist." I'm like, "What the heck does that mean?" You know, <laughs> like no, I think the artist tag is correct because here's the thing. A lot of people make things, mm-hmm. but a lot of those things aren't inspiring in any way. Right. And that's what art is. It, it's inspiring. It's, it, you know, it, it hits certain emotional buttons. Absolutely. So, yeah, you're an artist. People look at your stuff and they get, they get inspired or they, they're like, wow, check that out. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's art. Well, we're coming to the end of here, Jake, but... um. I want to make sure that people know how to reach you. Um, obviously, the Unimog stuff is your latest and greatest, but somebody can call you for just about any custom piece, right? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's the point of stepping away from uh, the auto restoration brand, you know, box. I don't want to put myself in just that category anymore. Prototype engineer is, is a good job title. Um, so, yeah. If you have something wild in mind, I'd love to look at it. You're the guy to call. How do people reach you? I think Instagram. If you've got a Unimog 404 and you want a custom bumper, you want a removable hardtop, Jake's the man to see. You could also do just about any custom fabrication anybody needs, right? Yeah. And you're in San Marcos, California, and people can reach you just through your... Instagram, yeah. And your Instagram handle is the Flying Dutchman CO. Right, correct. Awesome, dude. Thank you for being with me. This yeah. was really fun. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And I would love it if you would leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until next time, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening. I'll be back next week with another episode of Horsepower Heritage. In the meantime, hit that subscribe button. Click that five-star rating and leave me a review on your favorite podcast app. All of those things help me reach more gearheads like you. I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.